Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. Now, as you remember, we are working our way through John's Gospel, chapter 17. Could you turn to it? Last week we looked at the first five verses. We come now to verses 6 to 19. And if you have the NIV, the little heading at the top of the paragraph is Jesus prays for his disciples. And so being very original, we pinched that title for tonight, for our terms card program. People who are taking exams at the moment, GCSEs and all that, sorry to remind uh, some of you in the corner, You know the importance of organizing your essays, your answers, very clearly. The sharpest eyes on me at the moment are from a teacher. You have to organize your material if it's to be clear. John would have passed GCSE. John organizes his gospel with great clarity. And chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 hang together. You couldn't remove, for instance, chapter 15 and stick it in at the end of the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It wouldn't do there. And the prayer that we're studying in chapter 17 is right and proper, just coming as it does before the crucifixion. Now, in these chapters, 13 to 17, Jesus uh, is and has been talking to his disciples only. No longer the crowd. No longer the skeptics, the unbelievers. At last, it almost feels like that. At last, he can be alone with his own. And very early in chapter 13, Judas Iscariot goes out. And the Lord is left with those who love him and trust him. And the subject matter of these chapters lasts through one evening that he spent together. This is one evening's teaching. They may well have left the upper room at the end of chapter 15 and and gone out for a walk towards Gethsemane, but he would have carried on talking this material as he went. And the occasion in the Jewish calendar when all this happened was the feast of the Passover. Now, we were looking at that uh, just four weeks ago, um, one Sunday morning. You remember two great things about the Passover, do you? One, this was the occasion when the lamb was sacrificed for each family, so that judgment would not fall on that family as a family. That was the first thing. And the second thing was that they were to eat that Passover meal prepared for a journey. They had their walking boots on, They had their loins girt about them, as the old version used to say. They were ready for a journey that was to begin the moment the meal finished. The head of the family had to stand there with his staff in his hand. It's actually quite a difficult thing to do, to eat a meal with your staff in your hand. But he was commanded by God to do it. Because implicit in that meal was a journey beginning right there and then. 
They had no permission to say, well, I'll have the meal, and then in a couple of weeks I'll see whether I still feel the same about leaving Egypt. And now we come during these chapters, these nights, to the great Passover feast. Many thousands of Jewish Passover feasts had come and gone. And they have finally come to the very last one. Jesus had said, I have looked forward to this for a long time. The great Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world was spending his last hours with them before going out to die. And the disciples, following these chapters, were going to embark on a wholly new kind of spiritual journey. So Jesus has been talking to them in these terms all the way through chapters 13 and 14 and 15 and 16, right up to the point that we have now reached. You remember at the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus said, uh, My father's house, plenty of room, you are on a journey there. I am the way. No man can go to the Father on that journey except by me. In John chapter 14, the Lord had said that if we love him and keep his commandments, he will come and tabernacle with us. We looked at that a few Sunday evenings ago, didn't we? The Lord will actually come and live amongst his people on that traveling through life. The Lord speaks in these chapters about enemies that they will face on that journey. And we looked in Exodus, uh, before Christmas, at some of the foes that stood barring the way from Egypt to the Promised Land. And through these chapters, the Lord has been explaining the provisions that he is going to make for them, these disciples and all who will follow, that they might get through that journey and arrive gloriously one day at the place that God has prepared. The commands, or laws, if you like, that the Lord gives the provision of the Holy Spirit to teach them, to guide them, to be with them, to go with them. And we come in John 17, when he turns at the end of those chapters to prayer, we come to one of the most vital provisions of all. Not instruction, but the Lord's intercession for his own disciples. He just before he leaves them, only a matter of, of an hour or two before he goes out to arrest and trial and the cross, he gives them the most marvellous example of what will be from this point onwards the very heart of his ministry for them. Praying for them. I tell you, this is the secret, ultimately, of real assurance of salvation. That the Lord Jesus Christ right now prays for us daily, perceptively, honestly, at the Father's right hand, seeing us through our life until one day we come to glory. It's a remarkable chapter. We're going to read our bit in a moment. But just let this dawn on you. We are listening to one member of the Trinity talking to another about us. We are listening to a conversation within the Godhead about us. And we will see some of the tactics and concerns that there are within the very heart of God for us in our progress through life 
Let's read verses uh, 6 to 19. Jesus in prayer says, I have revealed you. Or perhaps more literally, I have revealed your name, he says to God. To those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer. But they are still in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them. By the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost, except the one doomed to destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them, from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Let's look through the passage very quickly. Verses 6, 7, and 8, he is continuing to summarize what he has been doing on earth. He is coming back to the Father, and he is saying, this is what I have done. I look back over my life, I have accomplished the work you gave me to do, this is what I have done. I have done two things. Oh, Father, I have revealed your name, that's verse 6. And secondly, I have given them, Father, the words that you gave me. Let's think about those two for a moment. He says, I have so revealed your name, your character, that people have come to love you. They've come to admire you and trust you. Having tea, uh, a little bit earlier, was it lunch? I can't remember. Um, those of us that were gathered around that table were talking about the way in which sometimes famous people uh, have an amazing ability to draw out of a coma someone who has been perhaps injured in an accident. You've heard of this. I read in the papers just a day or two ago how Nick Faldo, the golfing champion, uh, heard about some young fellow who was uh, very keen on golf. He was involved in an accident. He was in hospital. He was sunk in a deep coma. Faldo sent him a tape, talked about some golfing experiences, uh, said he wanted to uh, meet with this young man, uh, give him half a day's coaching or something. And 
playing that tape over has drawn him out of his coma. Cliff Richard has done the same. Princess Di has actually been used in the same sort of way. You've heard of this kind of thing in, in the newspapers. How somehow in our subconscious, the words of someone that we respect get through and can have a kind of life-giving effect there. I don't know how it works. But Jesus is saying something even deeper than that. I have revealed you, O Father, at a very deep level of people's being, in their spirits. I have manifested you. And they have begun to trust you, and they know that I came from you. Millions of people all over the world, right now, love and honour the Lord Jesus. Millions and millions and millions. In cultures, uh, I mean, from one end of the, the world to another. The Jews couldn't do that. The high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, couldn't do that. It was Jesus who came and caused that to happen. They loved the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I came, and what I did revealed God. Now, in a moment, he's going to say, I have sent people out to do what you sent me to do, Father. But let's understand first what it is that God sent him to do. It is to make manifest what it is to be godly. The character of God himself. Think of a moment, uh, for a moment, if you will, of Jesus coming into the temple. When it was absolutely full of money changers and bullocks and goats and all that. And we read of Christ becoming angry and making a whip of cords. Because what was going on was an astonishing insult to the nature of God. These people were guilty of representing God as somebody who was out for all he could get from human beings. God was demanding payment, demanding worship, demanding obedience. What a travesty. They're absolutely opposite of what Jesus came to preach. Jesus came to show a God who, who gives who will not allow you to buy forgiveness, who wants to give it freely. God so loved the world that he gave. His son went to the cross and gave his life. And Jesus threw all these people out of the temple because of what they were doing. It was a denial of the very nature of God. And then you remember in that uh, astonishing scene when the pigeons all flew away and the bullocks all went crashing off into the back streets and the money was rolling around on the floor and eventually... Um, but it quiet sort of descended on the place. Jesus had been shouting verses out of Isaiah and Jeremiah, my father's house shall be a house of prayer, and so on. And then what happened? Do you remember? Tap, 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 tap with a stick, and a lame man, who wouldn't have been allowed into the temple, made his way over to Jesus, or a blind man. Little children began to peer round the pillar, and then come and sort of play Ring of Roses games around Jesus. Scripture says it was the lame and it was the children <coughs> who came and gathered around him there in that temple. He is revealing something of the heart of God, of what God is actually like. I have manifested your name. I have revealed you, says Jesus. That's the first thing that he's done. And the second thing he's done 
In verse 8, he speaks of it. He says, I have given them the words you gave me. The actual words that Jesus uses are the very words of God. And now they know with certainty that I came from you. And then Jesus begins to pray for these disciples in verse 9. I pray for them. I'm not praying for everybody. I'm just praying for the disciples. Now, why does he begin to pray for the disciples like this? Well, for this very reason that he's about to leave them. I'm going. These disciples are going to be left behind. What now? In verse 11, we see Jesus handing the care of the disciples back into the hands of the Father. It is a most remarkable thing. I will remain in the world no longer, verse 11. They are still in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, you now take over. You protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. Verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Whose hands would you rather be in? The hands of Jesus? Or the hands of the Father? Do you feel any preference? Do you feel that you're somehow safer in one than the other? You really ought not to. You are as safe in either. I mean, what a good shepherd Jesus is. He comes before Father and he says, Now I'm praying for those to whom I have revealed you. I've given them your words. I'm coming back to you. The time has come. Now, Father, you take over the business of protecting them and caring for them. You know, a Middle Eastern shepherd, when he took a flock of sheep off in the morning, he had a duty not to lose any of them. When he came back to the owner of the flock at night, he had to give an account, he had to count them in, to make sure that he had lost none. And Jesus is back almost with the Father. He says, now, count them in. I have not lost one, except the one that was an unbeliever from the start, Judas Iscariot. Jesus had known all along that Judas was not ever going to be a believer. Turn to John 10 a moment. John 10. Verse 27. My sheep, said Jesus, listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And then he goes on, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Same ideas, isn't it? Now he says, Father, I am coming back to you. I have protected them. I have not lost one. Now you protect them, Father, and keep them. Isn't it incredible to hear Christ talking to the Father about us? You know, our lives take some funny old twists and turns, don't they, sometimes? Some things happen that we worry about, or that hurt us, or that disappoint us. We face challenges, carry burdens. Do you know, these things are a matter of conversation within the Godhead as they concern you. 
Jesus who died for us, rose again that he might be our Lord, is here as he's about to depart, saying, Now, Father, look after them. I'm coming back. You care for them. You protect them. How will the Father protect us? In two ways. He will do it by the power of his name. And he will do it by his word of truth. Exactly the same tactics that Jesus employed are to be used in our safety and security as we move through the journey of life home to glory. <clears throat> Verse 11, second half of it. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me. That revelation of yourself, oh God, continue to grant it. Now, <clears throat> as you think back over recent weeks, have there been times in your own life when God has shown you glimpses of himself? Of his character? Of his grace? Maybe of his sternness? Of his patience? His name? I have, um, I hope I brought it, intended to bring it, oh yes, here we are. Um, in a little notebook I keep at home, sort of a prayer book, I've got slipped into the back of it at the moment, uh, a list of some of the names of God. I was pondering this one day, and largely from the Psalms and some other places in Scripture, I wrote down over 20 different names of God. All descriptive of his character. He is the rock. Unmovable under our feet. He is the shepherd. He is my shield or stronghold that you can hold up against the attacks of the enemy. He is my light, Psalm 27. He is my strength. Even when you feel worn out, you wake up in the morning sometimes totally tired before you've even put your feet on the ground, burdened down with things that come in the day ahead. He is my strength. He is my refuge. He is my father, says Psalm 89. Here's a wonderful one, Psalm 91. He is my mother bird. Isn't God extraordinary to humble himself, to call himself a mother bird or a hen? The psalmist says, God is my hen. <laughs> Gathering the chicks under its wings. He is my help. He is my shade. He is my song. He is my redeemer, my warrior. Isaiah 45, he is the potter, moulding and shaping my life for eternity. My husband, says Isaiah 54. The fountain, the dew, the lion, the leopard. So many different names for God. And I have shown the disciples, said Jesus, what is in those names. Now, Father, will you continue to reveal your name, your character, your faithfulness, your defensiveness, your care, your love, to these whom I have now brought before you, in order that they might be protected all the way through to glory. So amidst the temptations to resentment or, or jealousy or temper or lust, God longs to just give you glimpses of himself, which are protected. And then verses 16 and 17, the second of these tactics by which God 
protects us. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Don't take them out of the world, Father. But keep them and make them holy in it. How? By the word. And then as they are sent out into the world, same tactics as you sent me, Father. So they are to be sent out. Into the offices, and the schools, and the colleges, and wherever they go. In their character, in their likeness to Christ, to look like something of Jesus amongst their friends. You know, if we want to be protected and brought right through to the end of life's journey, we are going to have to continue to allow the Holy Spirit to expound the word of God to us so that the glory of Christ dawns on us, so that our hearts are filled afresh with patience, with strength, with wisdom, with discernment, and so on. Jesus says in verse 19, I have set myself apart precisely to secure that goal. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus says, I'm coming to you, Father. And in coming, I am setting myself now to pray for them. Can you imagine God praying for you tomorrow morning? Jesus himself, watching over what you will face. Uh, the exams for some. The difficult people. The telephone calls. The struggles. And Father and Son know intimately exactly what you face. And the great concern within the Godhead is that the eternal life that God has planted in you shall continue to mature as you get these glimpses of what God is really like, who he really is. And as his word, the very words of God through Jesus, are chewed over and digested, they wash us. That is the central concern of this chapter. Isn't it wonderful thing? To think of the Lord doing that tonight. Watching our hearts as we come. Come to worship. Come to sing. Come to listen to one another. Get glimpses in what one and another says of the very glory of God. That we might be helped on our own pilgrimage journey from Passover to the Promised Land. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your care for us. Thank you for your intimate knowledge of us. Thank you for those things that you do show us from time to time. And especially when we seek you. The things you show us of yourself. Lord, continue to lead us by that Holy Spirit you promised. May your word live in our midst. As we worship and sing and rejoice and ponder and meditate together. Thank you, Lord, our hope is still in you. Day by day until the end of life's journey. For your name's sake. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.